Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. We're going to hit the springboard at the end of the chapter and jump into 40 pretty quickly. It was a hard lesson last week about temptation and about dealing with temptation because temptation can, uh, can, can come at you from all kinds of different directions. And uh, it can be quite challenging. It can be quite challenging. Tonight I wanted to talk to you about a totally different kinds of scenario. Last week we were in a palace an absolute beautiful palace. How do I know? It's not described to me. Hey, this guy, this guy's big dog. Big dog in Egypt. He's got a nice place to live, okay? Nice place. Tonight, we are going to be in a dungeon. A lot of people think that the dungeon was actually attached to the, uh, the palace in a, uh, a round house, a round building. And we are going to see Joseph going from a very favored position of being in charge of Potiphar's palace, everything except his food and his wife. And we are going to see him the lowest of the low in jail, in a major jail, and then to rise again in the jail. I don't want you to think that the rising again in the jail uh, meant that he had a life of luxury. He did not. I don't want you to think that he at any time sat there and thought, man, I am just so blessed to be in this jail. It's not like that. I wish we would, I wish we would at least be honest with our preaching and our teaching when Paul says, count it all joy when you face trials. It's not about the trial that brings joy. Jesus, it said, he looked to the joy and endured the cross. He didn't sit there and said, man, I'm glad I'm up here. I just love being, you know, the, the butt of all the jokes and suffering and there's so much blood I can barely see and I can barely breathe. I just love this situation. That's not true. And we have to understand and we have to start being honest with people. Because every once in a while people will come into our buildings, they'll hear some kind of, excuse me, garbage uh, like that. And then they'll become a Christian, and then when life slaps you upside the head, they'll sit there and go, what, what did I do wrong? What I, God said I was supposed to be blessed. God said I was supposed to have this, but God said I was supposed to have this. Everything is rosy. Everything is wonderful. That's a lie. That is a lie perpetrated by the devil, so you'll turn away from God. God did not say everything was going to be good. He said, I am going to bring good out of it somehow, some way. And I've got to tell you something. It's tough for me sometimes to see babies 
the way they've been treated the last few days and think good can come out of it. But if anyone can do it, God can do it. God can do it. And God can bring good. God can make people sit up and understand... I'm sorry, I don't mean to be preaching. Make people sit up and understand the preciousness of life. Because it is God-given. And I've got to say that we are simply seeing the demonstration of abortion flipped a few days after birth. If you really want to see what's happening in our country, our country, just watch the news for a couple minutes and you'll see it. What happens? It's such a sad, sad thing. But I've got to believe, because God told me that He is going to see us through all of this. He is going to be with us in the storms. And because He's going to be with us in the storms, we've got to hold on to Him no matter what. So Joseph goes from the palace to the prison and he's going to learn some lessons. Every once in a while, I was, I was a, a principal, I, I was an administrator of a school, I was a, a, a supervisor of student teachers at a college, uh, or a couple of colleges. I'd, and every once in a while, student teachers would come to me and say, you know what, the teacher I've got is just not a real good teacher. And I said, I understand that. You know, I didn't do the placement, so I always had to I always had an out, you know, it wasn't my fault. (laughs) And I'd say, I'd say, you know what? You can learn just as much in bad situations as you can in good situations if you're looking for the lessons to learn. Joseph learned some lessons tonight. So I'm calling this Lessons from the Dungeon, okay? Lesson number one comes to us from chapter 39, 19 or or 18 or so through 23, the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read all of this. I'm not going to read all of this, but I'll tell you what the first lesson is. The first lesson is trust God no matter what. Trust God no matter what. You, you, you know what happened last week, if you were here last week, Potiphar, uh, Potiphar's wife uh, just, just flung herself at, at Joseph, you know, come sleep with me, come sleep with me, day in, day out, repeated, repeated, repeated. She's where he is and he's trying to get away from her and trying not to be where she's wanting to be and he keeps refusing and she, uh, uh, he runs out. He runs out. And her plan, she's a smart lady. She's a smart lady. She's covering her bases. And she acts out of hatred. She can't believe that someone, this this ignorant Hebrew would, would, uh, and that's meant as a slur, I'm I'm, I'm sure, from her. Uh, 
she can't believe that he would turn her down. So she spreads the rumor all around the servants that this guy has tried to molest me, tried to rape me, and probably, I mean, he's the, Joseph's the head of honcho in this uh, uh, house, and you know there's got to be some jealousy there. So the servants might actually find it easy to believe Miss Potiphar because they're jealous of Joseph, and hey, wait, hey, this is a way to get rid of him, and maybe I would uh, uh, rise up in power. And you think about Proverbs 29, verse 27, Proverbs 29, 27, that says, The righteous detest the dishonest, and the wicked detest the, the, the upright. There's a, there's, a, there's a back and forth conflict there between the righteous and the, and the wicked. They don't like each other because it, it, it's, it's totally diametrically opposed to one another. And then when Potiphar returns home, his wife has the lies already there, already ready, and she, she just repeats the same lies. She repeats the same lies and uses the garment that Joseph left as evidence. Now, just think about it. Joseph could have pulled off his coat, you know, for, for, for working purposes. He could have done whatever, whatever it was. This wasn't evidence at all. And you understand now, Deuteronomy 19.15, why one witness is not enough. God always said, have two or three witnesses. That's not evidence. Remember, there was no one in the house. And she's making up this story as she's going along. And she's got this garment, however. And she's putting it as exhibit number one. There are gobs of righteous people that have been treated this way. Daniel, Jeremiah, Stephen, Paul, all the apostles, and Jesus. And it's kind of like one, 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 one person's word against another, but somehow, some way, Potiphar's in a difficult position. He's had this faithful servant, Joseph, and he has profit, uh, profited by it because he knows that God has been with him. But it doesn't seem like he's even heard Joseph's side. He's acting in anger. And Joseph uh, would have had to uh, basically accuse her of lying, and that was not going to be allowed to happen. I have to say, however, that it seems as though Joseph got a lighter sentence. You say, how can you say a lighter sentence? He's got life in prison kind of thing. Think about it just a minute. If you'd been Potiphar, what would have been the basic thing that you'd have gotten? Probably a, a, a sword in the side or, or, or across your neck or whatever it would be. I mean, you tried to, you tried to, to, to rape a, a, an Egyptian wife. So there could have been some sympathy there, not saying it, it was. He might have not totally believed his wife. He may have known about his wife. You know, he wasn't going to call his wife a liar in front of the servants. And he had to do something, and he allowed his anger to, to dictate what was going on, but he had to do something because he can't have servants basically uh, doing wrong if Joseph did wrong anyway, but
but I know that God somehow, some way, influenced the outcome. And Joseph went to prison. I don't know how long he had been there, but somehow, some way, the keeper of the prison uh, favored Joseph. Joseph just had something that God had given him that basically said, I can be depended on. Now think about this just a minute. Joseph could have easily, easily, easily used this mistreatment to basically sin. To try to make a deal, to cut a deal, to try to do something else, or just basically to say, uh, I'm going to fold my arms, I'm just going to sit here, and you know, you want me to work? I'm not working, I'm not doing anything. You want me to answer a question? I'm not answering you. I'm not talking to you. I'm not doing anything. But Joseph didn't do that. He didn't allow the mistreatment to cause him to turn against God or to make no effort in trying to be helpful. So what happened? The Lord blessed Joseph, and Joseph got to be in charge of the whole prison, all the prisoners. He was found trustworthy. Must have thought he's not going to escape or allow other people to escape. So how does he trust God no matter what? Basically, it's this. He understands. He doesn't like it. But he understands that God does not insulate us from difficulties. His entire life has been fraught with difficulties. He understands that if I stay close to God, things are not always going to go well. They're not always going to be fine. There's not going to be no trouble. That's a double negative. You understood what I mean. And we also see this. He wasn't in trouble because he did wrong. He was in trouble because he was obedient to God. Sometimes, now I'm not saying, you know, a lot of times I'm in trouble because I'm in trouble. You know, I did wrong, I did bad, I did something, and I'm in trouble. But every once in a while, I'm in trouble because I obey. I'm in trouble because I do exactly what God said. Isn't that what uh, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12? In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. We know what to expect. I don't think Joseph understood all the will of God. Okay, I don't think he, 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 his mind was there. I don't think he liked where he was. Isn't that the important part? And I love it. I love it. A lot of people are bothered by Jesus saying, if you will, please remove this. I mean, how I, I can't wrap my mind around people who think Jesus wanted to go to the cross. He was going to the cross. No doubt. But to sit there and say, hey, man, this is great. I get to go to the cross. That's not the way Jesus... You, you, you miss the whole tragic 
import of sin and what it cost him to think that he just absolutely loved what he had to do. But even though he didn't love what he had to do, he was going to do it because he knew. He knew that there would be joy waiting for him when he came through it. Maybe that's where Joseph was. Joseph lived life. He lived and trusted God no matter what. Number two, uh, second lesson. He lived life with a God-centered focus. Now that sounds very close and they will join together very, very quickly. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. It's about the uh, butler and the baker's imprisonment. Joseph had gone in there. His, uh, uh, he probably felt like he couldn't go any lower. Uh, I don't think he knew God's plan of what was going on yet. But he will later on. Everything will be revealed to him. And somehow these two guys offended Pharaoh. They offended Pharaoh. And his own predicament did not keep him from not looking out and caring for others. He was willing. He was, he was not, uh, let's just call it selfish preoccupation. He was not so selfishly preoccupied with himself that he didn't care for others. He knew his own predicament was the same, but they had a dream. No one was there to interpret. They came to Joseph, and in the same night, they had this dream. Each dream had its own meaning. They were sad, and Joseph said, Why are you sad? Why are you sad? And they said, We need someone to interpret. No one can interpret. And he says, Verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. I want you to think about something very quickly. I, I wonder sometimes how Joseph knew that God was going to allow an interpretation here. Remember, he hasn't interpreted Pharaoh's dream yet. That's coming in the next chapter. Uh, his dream was pretty straightforward. I guess God interpreted that for him. Maybe he thought in extension that this was going to happen. And God did that during the patriarchal age. He was approximately 28 years old at this time when he's in prison. He's been there at least 11 years since his uh, brothers have sold him. But I think most importantly of all, before he steps out into the foreground, before he steps out in the foreground, before he takes a bow saying, you know, I'm pretty quick with, uh, with dreams, I'm, 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 I'm pretty clear, clairvoyant and all that stuff with dreams, you just tell me and I, I, I've got you back kind of thing. Before he steps anywhere into the limelight, he talks about God. He said, God is the only one. You know, the sad part about it is when we 
jump out into those lights, we can easily take the focus off of God and obscure His grace. And I think a good thing for us to remember at this particular juncture is John 15, verses 1 through 5. And you know a lot of those verses. It basically says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch that does not bear fruit, and those that bear fruit, you know, He prunes so it'll be uh, more, uh, they'll produce more. But I love it how He ends it. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think we need to remember that. As young people, as teenagers, as 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s on up, we need to continue to remember apart from Him, we can do nothing. And Joseph seems to have that idea. We are not self-centered. We are not circumstance-centered. We are God-centered. We are always thinking about God, acknowledging God, understanding God. Let me tell you very quickly what I do. I'm an amateur photographer. That means that someone did not really understand and got me a camera. Okay? And I take pictures sometimes. And every once in a while, I'll sit there and I'll click it and I'll go, man, good, good stuff, you know. And I am so glad you don't have to get them processed anymore. You can just look digitally at it. And you click that little, little viewfinder, and, and I might even hook it up to the TV so I can see it in big, big, bold, you know, whatever. And this, this gutter is coming out of her head. And I didn't see that when I was looking at the viewfinder, you know. And the whole, and there's all kinds of stuff coming out of people, you know. It, all kinds of weird things. Can, you know what I'm talking about. You've had pictures like that. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what was I focused on? That's the point. Amateur photographers sometimes don't see the full picture. They don't see the whole. So they, they have these gutters and rods and all kinds of stuff sticking out of the back, and it looks funny, and you look like you've, you've just taken a picture of an alien. But our reaction to circumstances basically tells us what angle we have our lens set on, what's, what's in our viewfinder. If our viewfinder is focused just on this and it misses the picture, it misses the picture, then we have missed and obscured what's really there. We have to have a God-focused perspective. A God-focused perspective. And that's why we live our lives God-focused. Focused, And I think that's why he said, hey, 
It's not about me. These interpretations are about God. And you know what? I bet Daniel, I wonder if Daniel took a, took a page out of Joseph's playbook. Because this sounds just like Daniel. Daniel said, I can't do that. God can, but I can't, you know. Lesson number three, tell the truth without ambiguity. Ambiguity. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Nine through 19. We've got the butler's dream, and he talks about the butler's dream. Three branches budded, blossomed, produced ripe grapes. Here's Pharaoh's cup. Pharaoh's cup, and he uh, he uh, uh, he takes those those grapes and he and he juices them and puts them in the cup for Pharaoh to drink. You know his job was extremely extremely important. And if you want to know a little bit more about a cup bearer, read Nehemiah. Nehemiah seems to have had about the same job as as this guy did. Think about it just a minute. His job was very important because he made sure. Poisoning was one of the easiest ways to assassinate someone. And that butler had a major responsibility of keeping that, that, that great juice that he had pure for the, the, uh, the, the royalty person and his guests. He had to make sure that this guy was responsible. He may have even been responsible at the vineyard level to make sure that it got to the table all the way in the process. But also something that is, it, it may be there also is that he overheard a state or state secrets. It seems like Nehemiah was very linked in to state affairs with his boss. Regardless, this guy had an extremely important position and he was most trusted person. I don't know what he did to offend the Pharaoh, but he did something. And Joseph was asked to interpret. He said the three branches are three days, and he gave him a favorable inter- uh, interpretation. He, uh, he, said, he said, you are going to be restored. He's going to lift up your head you will be restored and you're going to be able to provide him the job that you have been doing. And because it was favorable, Joseph puts a zinger in there. He says, listen to me. You know, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I I would much rather be out. I have been put here under un, uh, as a false accusation. She made a false accusation at me. She, I don't think he named names, but he's just basically telling his story and saying, I have been mistreated from beginning to end. 
And maybe, just maybe, this butler, this, this, uh, uh, this keeper of the cup, felt like he was innocently uh, put in here too. So he's thinking, maybe we've got a connection here. Maybe you've been falsely accused and there's got to be a kindness here and maybe you'll get me out of here. Maybe you'll sympathize. And then the baker, seeing that there was a favorable thing, said, I had a dream too. Let me tell you about my dream. I got three baskets on top of my head. There's some goodies and the birds come down and eat it. Just... Peck away at it. And he says, three days. Three baskets, three days. And he lost his goods. He lost his goods. You are going to be killed. You're going to be beheaded. And then you're going to be hung. And the birds will come and eat your flesh. Why is that important? And the translation was basically this. The Egyptians went to great lengths with the dead to make sure that their journey in death is peaceful. So he is going to be not only beheaded, but he is going to be impaled. And that is going to disrupt his journey, and he will not be allowed. Pharaoh is going to make sure that he's not only dead, but after death, he is going to, you know, bring a nightmare on him. That's how much he is going to to, uh, be against this baker. Now, the baker had an incredibly important position also incredibly important. But a lot of people interpret this as his job was to protect that food because he was serving the the Pharaoh, the king, and he didn't protect it. And because he was negligent, he deserved his punishment. A lot of people think that the butler didn't deserve his, the baker did deserve his. Regardless, that's what's going to happen. So how is this about telling the truth? Well, it's pretty obvious here. It's easy to tell good news to good people. And Joseph basically you know, put himself out there. He was very specific. He, uh, he, he put something out, information that was verifiable in three days. This is either going to happen or it's not going to happen. And, you know, the bad news, the crazy thing about it is, this guy had to be an optimist. Because I have to tell you, if I dreamed a dream about birds coming and eating all the stuff on top of my head, I, I don't see where that would come off as a positive thing. But somehow, some way, he was hoping for the best. And sadly, that's what a lot of people want in church. They don't want the truth. They just want some nice news. Nice news about how wonderful they are. 
how God wants them to be tremendously successful, how nothing bad's going to happen, and there's really not a hell. Everybody's going to heaven, and, and you just give it a good old college try, and everything will be fine. And sadly, that's just not the way it is. There was a uh, song, and I can't even tell you all the words to it. I just remember the, the little catchphrase that it had. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. And that's, that's basically what some people want. That's what some people want when they come to a, uh, to a church building. Someone once said this, if you're going to be a servant of God, if you're going to be a, the explainer of the human predicament, if you're going to speak to the questions of humanity, you're going to have to be able to tell the truth. The good, the bad, and the ugly, no matter what. No matter what. And someone added, all love to be flattered. Hence the majority of teachers in desiring to yield to the corrupt wishes of the world, adulterate the word of God. I'm not going to talk about politicians at this point because usually you would think that comes into play because we've got enough coming out of pulpits today. And that's sad. I'm not saying we have to beat people over the head with the Bible, but we certainly need to at least confront people in a loving way because we love people's souls with the truth. And you know, I think people, if push comes to shove, they may not like it, but I think they would appreciate the truth. Because the truth holds up a lot longer than the flimsy lies that people have been told. Lesson number four, lesson number four is verses 20 through 23. It's interesting that we're sitting here in prison and the king is having a birthday party. And there is a feast going on. And at these feasts, it seems like these were occasions that favors were given out. You know, uh, we've, we've, we've seen a lot of feast days and, and in the time of Jesus, who do you want me to release? And they released a, 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 a guy who would rebel against the empire over Jesus. So here, some kind of a favor is, is being given and these two guys are brought before him. And the butler is restored to his place. He, his head is lifted up and he is restored. And the baker, his head is lifted up and his body is hung and the birds eat his flesh just like God said. But that's not the main issue here. The lesson here is dealing with disappointment. 
by resting on God's faithfulness. It says at the very end, the chief cupbearer, the butler, however, did not remember Joseph. And to emphasize that fact, he says he forgot him. He forgot him. Let's talk about disappointment for just a second. We know that God is in control. I think Joseph knew that God was in control. I don't think he knew what in the world was going on, but he knew somehow, some way, God was in the control. And, but he wanted to get out. And he says, I'm still stuck here. Don't forget me. Guy says, hey, don't worry about it. I've got your back. I'll be right back to you. Week one, no word. Week two, nothing. Month passes, two months passes, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months pass, nothing. In fact, next week, we're going to know that it's 24 months are going to pass. People fail us. People let us down. Even the best of people don't come through sometimes. We are living proof of that because we have disappointed our share of people. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. Now, don't get me wrong, I've talked about this before. I've told you that there is a difference between people trust and God trust, okay? There's a particular way that I trust Beth, and Beth trusts me. We expect that in our marriage. We, 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 we rely on that in our marriage. However, I don't care how perfect a husband or a perfect a wife you are, we let each other down sometimes. We disappoint one another. Ultimately, we rely on God. We put our ultimate trust in God. If Joseph was relying on his dad, he's disappointed. His brothers, disappointed. On Pharaoh, disappointed. On Potiphar, disappointed. On the cupbearer, disappointed. But God's not going to forget him. And I want you to take this with you for the rest of this week. I don't care who has disappointed you. I don't care who has forgotten you. I know that you have probably taken many elbows in the rib cage. Many of you have been battered by friendly fire. But we're going to have to look from man and look up to God. The Bible says that God is an everlasting God. I can put my trust there. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. I can put my trust there. He will not grow weary 
and tired. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to us so that we can get up and fight temptation and what we need to fight each day of our lives. And I love this, I love this Isaiah passage, Isaiah 49, 15. The prophet says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? I remember the last time Beth and I flew. I remember the baby. The, 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 the family in front of us had this baby and, and the mom had this baby cradling this baby under her chin. And, you know, the baby's face was smashed up, you know, like that, sleeping. And, if, and you just think about it. This baby was hurtling through the air at 540 miles per hour, 35,000 feet in a tube above the earth. And she didn't have a care in the world, not one. All she knew that she was with her mom and her mom was not going to forget her. That's where we are. We can be disappointed by so many things, but God is not going to forget you. Never. It may seem like it because we don't get the full picture. It may seem like God's not answering our prayers. But I promise you, God will not forget you. And He'll be there when He sees that it's needed to be there as close as he can be to you. I will be with you always, he says. Trust in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the day. Thank you for watching over us and caring for us. Thank you for being with us and making that promise that you're going to be with us always. Through every day of our lives, you're with us somehow, some way, caring for us, watching out for us, seeing us in our difficulties, seeing us when we are pressured, seeing us when we are hurting, providing ways of escape when we are tempted. You're always working for our benefit. And if things are not going just as we see fit, help us to trust you because we know that you are worthy of that trust. In Jesus' name, amen.